Shadows of Golgotha. We started talking about that back in August of 2016, almost a year and a half ago. We start from Genesis and we have been going through the Old Testament where we are looking at the pictures of the cross throughout the Old Testament. We just finished last week um, Isaiah 53. We spent 15 weeks in Isaiah 53. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, we are now uh, arrived to the book of Zechariah. We're going to stay in Zechariah for two weeks, this week and next week. Um, and then I think that's pretty much all. That's, um, I mean, next week uh, we're going to have the mission conference, so the week after. I think that would be all for us as far as um, uh, the shadows of, of Golgotha. And then after that, we're going to start in the book of Hebrews. Um, uh, the, what we're going to start talking about is the supremacy of the Son of God, because that's pretty much what Hebrews is all about. I think we're going to stay in Hebrews for a long time. Um, we're going to have books that I want you, each one of you guys to have. I suggest that you start studying Hebrews as well in the Bible study if you would like to. But if not, um, I really want all of us to study Hebrews together. Amen. So I'm going to give you a book that I need you to study with me. And we walk through Hebrews together. You study it at home by yourself. And we come here. We talk about it as well. And let's meditate and pray and think and uh, learn a lot. And I think Hebrews is going to be such a blessing for us. Amen. So now let's turn to um, Zechariah 13, verse 1. Let me just give you a, a small introduction, and then we're going to read that one verse that we're going to be talking about. Zechariah is only a 14-chapter book, and it's one of the minor prophets. Yet that book is so heavy on Messianic prophecies. If I remember correctly, I read somewhere that Zechariah might be the second book in the Old Testament when it comes to the numbers of the Messianic prophecies after Isaiah. I might be wrong, but I think I read that somewhere. It, it is truly rich in a lot of uh, Messianic prophecies, and the stuff that Zechariah talks about, it is so interesting. It is a small book, but it is so rich in what it says uh, about Jesus and about what he's going to be doing, the Messiah. For example, in we start in Zechariah 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 8, and then again in um, chapter 6, verse 12, we read about this, uh, the servant, the branch, that Zechariah talks about twice, and that is Christ. We learned about that in the New Testament. Um, I think both Jeremiah and Isaiah also talked about the branch. It's a common theme in the Old Testament, talking about the coming Messiah, and his coming name will be the branch. Uh, then in Zechariah 9, 9, this is very interesting prophecy, we see that Zechariah talks about the king of Israel, which it looks like he's implying that this is Jehovah himself, God, the king of Israel. But it says to Jerusalem, look how your king going to come to you humble and entering Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem on a colt, on a donkey. And we know that this literally was fulfilled in Christ. When he entered Jerusalem uh, on Palm Sunday, Jesus entered on a donkey. And that was a prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. That the one who's going to enter on a donkey will be the king of Israel, the Lord himself. And then in Zechariah 11, verse 12 and verse 13, this is such an interesting prophecy as well. God is talking to Zechariah and he say, see how much they're going to evaluate me with. And then the children of Israel evaluate God for 30 shekels of silver. And then God says to Zechariah, Take this money, which they evaluated me with, and throw it in the, uh, in the field of the blood. 
We know that this is literally was fulfilled in the New Testament after Judas, uh, after Judah betrayed Christ, then he, he was very sad, very upset, repenting, and he wanted to take the money back. They didn't want to take it from him. So he took that 30 shekels with, with which he sold Christ and he threw it in the field of blood. Again, um, God in Zechariah said they evaluated me with 30 shekels of silver. And we see that Christ in the New Testament was evaluated with 30 shekels of silver. Zechariah 12.10. Again, all these prophecies are just so uh, unique. And all these prophecies have some sort of textual problem. Some text just kind of like change it and there's some problems in it because I think that scribes when you read this and you see God saying they evaluated me with 30 shekels of silver and you're a Jewish scribe just writing the scripture this is such a confusing verse for you and you wonder how come they evaluate God himself with 30 shekels of silver so some of the scribes will say oh that must must be Zechariah the one who was evaluated with 30 shekels of silver so the text sometimes just because it's hard for the scribes, they might try to alter it a little bit to make more sense out of it because it will not make sense unless you know what happened to Christ later on. Again, one of the scriptures like that is in Zechariah 12, 10, when we see God says, they're going to look unto me whom they pierced and they're going to mourn. That's God saying they're going to pierce me. I can imagine only a Jewish scribe writing down that verse and it's like a pierced God. I have never heard of that before. Amen. But that doesn't make any sense to the Jews back then because it's a prophecy that can only be fulfilled in Christ himself as we're going to see today. And then we arrive to chapter 13 and we read two different prophecies here. Actually, two different shadows of the cross we found here in chapter 13. In verse 1, we see that there will be a fountain open for the children of Israel for cleansing and for forgiveness. And then again in verse 7 of chapter 13, we see that the shepherd will be stricken on behalf of the sheep. And as the result, God will spare the sheep his wrath. Amen? Both verse 1 and verse 7 are shadows of Golgotha, shadows of the cross. Today, we're only going to stop in verse 1. Two weeks later, we're going to uh, study verse 7, and then I think we should be all done with the shadows of Golgotha. So I'll read to you Zechariah 13, 1. And let's dig deeper into that verse and see what the word of the Lord is teaching us. Here is what Zechariah said. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for cleansing. Can we read that verse together? It's not too long. Let's read it out loud all together. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. So let's break it down a little bit. Let's start with the very first words here. In that day. What day is Zechariah talking about? A lot of commentators have different ideas. Many of them argue that this is the day that Jesus was pierced on the cross. I don't think that's what Zechariah was talking about here. If you look into the bigger picture of Zechariah, we see that um, from Zechariah 9 to Zechariah 14, pretty much the second half of Zechariah, Zechariah is talking about two different burdens or uh, two different visions or two different revelations that the Lord has given him. 
The first burden we read about from, from chapter 9, 10, and 11. And then the second burden we read about in chapter 12, 13, and 14. The first burden, the first revelation, the first word of the Lord that came to Zechariah is really more prophecies about the first coming of Christ. That's when we see that the king of Israel will enter into uh, Jerusalem riding a donkey. That's where we see that God will be evaluated with 30 shekels of, um, of silver. That's where we see that, um, that God himself also will be pierced, but that's uh, about the future. So from, verse nine, from chapter 9 to 11, it's all about prophecies about the first coming of Christ. And then chapter 12, 13, and 14 it's prophecies about not the first coming of Christ, but the second coming of Christ. Amen? And between, verse, uh, between chapter 12 to chapter 14, where it all talks about the future blessings of, of, of Israel as a nation that God has stored for them during the Millennium Kingdom. Again, this is all future prophecies, nothing to do with the church so far. Um, in these three chapters, we read the word in that day about 17 times. We read seven times in chapter, um, we read the word in that day, seven times in chapter one, three times in chapter 13, and seven times in chapter 14. All in all, 17 times we read the phrase in that day in the book of Zechariah. And almost, it's exclusive, a reference to the future restoration of Israel as a nation that has nothing to do with that church per se. You guys follow me? I'm not sure where you stand on the old eschatology and the end of times, but we do believe that the Bible teaches that Christ will come and there will be a literal millennium kingdom over the nation of Israel. That's when God will restore Israel. And if you read Zechariah, that's all these prophecies in these, every time Zechariah say in that day, it's usually a reference, a prophecy of a blessing that God has to the children of Israel in the future. Amen? Amen. Not to mention... Another confirmation that every single time in that day, especially in this verse that we're looking at right now, Zechariah 13, 1, in that day, again, the future re uh, restoration of Israel that God will do, we see that verse actually quoted in the New Testament. And when it was quoted in the New Testament, it was also used as a reference to the second coming of Christ and what he has stored for Israel. We see that verse quoted in uh, Revelation 1.7. Now, look at this. Here is what it says in Revelation 1.7. Behold, he is coming. Now, what, which coming is the book of Revelation talking about here? The first coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ? The second coming, right? Revelation was written after the first coming, right? And then after the first coming, John says, Behold, he is coming again, right? He's coming again, not the first coming here. That's the second coming for Christ. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. And even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn because of him. Even so, amen. So John saying that Christ will come in his second coming and all those who pierced him will look at him and mourn. And that's a direct quote actually from uh, this is not Zechariah 13, 1, my bad. It's from Zechariah 12, I think, verse, um, verse 10. Zechariah 12, 10. This is what God said. And I will pour my spirit on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look unto me whom they pierced, and they will mourn for him as the one mourned for his only son, and grieve for him as the one who grieves for his firstborn. So we see that Zechariah 12, 10, 
what's quoted in Revelation 1-7, and it's all in future context when the second coming of Christ, not the first coming of Christ. You guys follow me? Good? So again, let's recap. Every time, the 17 times in the book of Zechariah, the word in that day is mentioned, usually exclusive, talks about the future restoration of Israel. We see an example that Zechariah 12.10 was quoted and applied to the second coming of Christ in the uh, New Testament. But not only that, even the very verse that we're reading right here, in that day, look at this, in that day, a fountain, what's going to happen? shall be opened. So that's a future event, right? Zechariah here is not talking about something going to happen in the past. He's talking about something going to happen in the future. But then look what he says after that. It will be open not for the falling human race, right? It's going to be open for who? For the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It seems to me, if he says the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that this is an exclusive blessing that God has for Israel in the future during the Millennium Kingdom. Amen? Amen. Follow me? Clear like mud? So what is Zechariah talking about here in that day? From the context of Zechariah, the way it was quoted in the New Testament, we can fairly with confidence say that this is a blessing, one among many, that God has for Israel as a nation during the Millennium Kingdom. Not really talking about the church here, okay? Not talking really about you and me. Amen? But even though it's not really talking about you and me, it talks about how God will cleanse Israel in the future during the Millennium Kingdom, we still can learn lessons from how God cleansed people from sin in general. Amen? And from that, we'll see that this is a vivid picture of the cross, that there is no salvation, there is no forgiveness apart from the blood of Jesus that he has shed for us on the cross. Whether you're talking about the church, whether you're talking about Israel in the future, it's only the blood of Jesus that can for, provide forgiveness for sin and for Anna, cleansing. You guys follow me so far? Now, let's talk about the second word, a fountain. What is that word is referring to? Let's go back and read the immediate context before Zechariah 13.1. Here is what Zechariah 12.9 starts at. It shall be, again, what is the word after that? In that day, okay? I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Again, you guys see that. This is a future prophecy about Israel. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look unto me whom they pierced. If you ever meet a Jew who says, oh, where do you get the fact that Jesus is God from the Old Testament? There is no such a thing. Bring them here. God says they're going to look unto me whom they pierced. Amen? And they will mourn for him as a one mourn for his only son and grieve for him as the one grieves for his for his firstborn. Look at verse 11 again. In that day, again, that's the future blessing of Israel, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, and the rest of the chapter goes on about how Israel will mourn God when he pours out the spirit of grace and the spirit of supplication on them, and the whole nation corporately will mourn that they have pierced God, and individually also they will mourn and regret the fact that they have pierced God. You guys follow me? And then we launch into chapter 13 verse 1. In that day a fountain shall be opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for cleansing. 
What I'm suggesting here is this. Maybe that fountain is linked to how Jehovah God himself was pierced in verse 10. Remember in, in the Old Testament, there's no chapters and verses, right? It's all one block of words, one, one thought that is flowing through all and all, right? The immediate context talk about God himself being pierced. And right after that, we see that there will be a fountain open for the children of Israel. And that fountain will be for cleansing from sin and from uncleanness. So the immediate context, I would see no objection from the immediate context that that fountain is actually flowing from God himself. The one who is pierced for the children of Israel. Amen? We're talking Old Testament, not New Testament. You guys follow me? Amen? This is just so good. And the fact that God himself is the fountain, God, God referred to himself many times in the Old Testament as a fountain. This is not a unique, weird theology that we're trying to impose on that verse. God himself talked about himself many times that he's a fountain. For example, Psalm 36, 9, the psalmist said that uh, with God there is the fountain of life. And in Jeremiah 2.13, God said that the children of Israel have done evil because they have went and they have dug for themselves dry wells that bring no water. And they have forsaken me. And then God says, I am the fountain of the living water. They have forsaken me. And they kept on trying to do their own things. Amen? So God himself, have, God himself has no problem referring to himself. David has no problem referring to God as the fountain of life and as the fountain of death living water. So to say here that Zechariah is referring to God or God is referring to himself here as the fountain that cleanses from sin and the uncleanness, it is not such a far-fetched idea. Amen? I can see it definitely happening and definitely supported by the scripture. So in that day, a fountain shall be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I honestly believe that the text here telling us that that fountain will be flowing from God himself who has been pierced. Amen? Amen. It, that fountain shall be opened. Now, in, in English, it looks like it's a future uh, event. But actually in Hebrew, the way it was constructed is that it gives us the idea that this fountain shall be continuously open. This fountain will be always running. It is not a one event deal. It is an ongoing fountain that will always produce cleansing and always produce forgiveness to the children of Israel. Amen. It's an ever ending fountain. It's a never uh, always opening fountain for the children of Israel. And what is this fountain going to do for the children of Israel and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem? Again, we learn from that. This is the same principle, how God cleansed from sin in general. This fountain is going to do two things, right? For what? For sin and for uncleanness. Amen? Let's talk about these two words. Let's talk about the word sin. What is sin? Look at me, everybody. What is sin? I need to hear something back from you. Rebellion against God. Rebellion against God. Good. What else? That's it. That's it. You got it. People say sin is missing the mark. It is not missing the mark. It's, this is a very diluted division or d definition of what sin is. The Bible tells us what sin is in 1 John. It says that whoever sins, he transgresses against the law, violation of the law. 
And whoever commits sin commits a transgression. So the very word sin is actually a legal term that says you're breaking the law. That's pretty much the very definition of the word sin. Amen? If somebody tells you sin is missing the mark, they don't read their Bibles. If the Bible tells you that sin is breaking the law, let's stick with the Bible, what the Bible teaches us sin is. Amen? I don't care about your opinion. Let's care about God's opinion. Amen? So that sin is actually a legal term. And it literally means breaking the law. And when you commit sin, you become guilty before the law of God. And when you're guilty before the law, you have to pay the penalty of the law of God. Amen? So this fountain will serve in this one area is sin, which is making, which is everybody is guilty before a holy and a righteous God. But the second word is, this fountain is also for uncleanness. And uncleanness here is a technical, again, um, ceremonial term, where it talks about somebody being um, ceremonially unclean before God. Used so many times in the Old Testament, specifically in reference to ritual and sexual impurity before God. Multiple examples to that in the Old Testament. So you see here that how many fountains we have? Do we have two fountains or one fountain? One fountain, right? But this fountain will solve one problem or two problems? Two problems. This fountain will solve the problem of breaking the law of God and us being guilty before God. And this fountain will also resolve the problem of being filthy and unclean ceremonially before a holy and a righteous God. Amen? Amen. Does that ring a bell to any New Testament believer? Amen? That's precisely what the blood of Jesus, the fountain that is flowing from pierced God on the cross, did. Has the cross, is the cross providing atonement, covering, satisfaction for the law of God for our sins? Absolutely. Romans 3.25. God, this is what Paul said, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. As a propitiation, we talked about this, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. We spend 20, what, 16 weeks or 26 weeks, I guess, talking about the blood of Jesus. And we say that the word propitiation here, it is when, when there's a holy and a righteous God that is, is ignited with wrath because people have sinned against him. And that atonement, that sacrifice, upease the wrath of a holy and a righteous God. And that's precisely what Jesus has done for us with his blood. He took care of the judgment and the wrath of God that you and I deserve because of our sins. Amen? Amen. That's the very reason of the fountain. It's for sin. And the blood of Jesus is for sin. Is the fountain also for uncleanness and being ceremonially unclean before a holy and a righteous God? Yes. And that's precisely what the blood of Jesus is also for. First John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And what happens afterward? And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, does what? Cleanses us ceremonially before God from how many sins? All sins. Do you see that? God has promised to Israel that one day when he restores them into his kingdom, that there will be a fountain open for them. And that one fountain will take care of the legal trouble that they're in because they have broken the law of God and the ceremonial trouble that they're in because they are unclean before a holy and a righteous God. Amen? Amen. 
And we learn from that as a New Testament believer. I don't think the scripture is for you and me, but we know from the New Testament that so many scriptures for you and me talks about the blood of Jesus doing the exact same thing. Amen? Amen. I just love it. It's precisely what the, the old hymn tells us. There is a fountain. He just based that hymn on that verse and it's so powerful. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel veins. And sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. Amen. Ever since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When this poor, lisping, uh, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. Amen? Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I will sing thy power to save. Amen? There is a fountain that shall be open for sin and cleansing. Let's all close our eyes and pray.